Tonight, I'm drawing to a close uh, our uh, study. I was really just going to do the Beatitudes. I extended it a little bit further into uh, Matthew chapter 5. But uh, I'm starting a new series. And I want to tell you a little bit as to why I chose doing 2 Corinthians in the morning. As I had said, when I started 1 Thessalonians, I was going to go right into 2 Thessalonians. But I've been... Uh, spending a lot of my personal time in the book of Job. And uh, I've really appreciated much of uh, what I've been studying. It's been refreshing to me. Uh, a lot of new ideas have come into my uh, mind, and my heart's kind of been soaring in the book of, of Job. And so I really wanted to share those things uh, with you. Uh, I think it's helpful when I'm excited about something. Uh, to uh, be able to communicate those things with you. So I wanted to do the book of Job, a little intense for the morning. So I decided to do Job at night. But then uh, I saw much correlation between 2 Corinthians and some of the thoughts there and the uh, study in the book of Job. So I thought doing those things back to back, morning uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Job at night, uh, actually may be very enlightening. And then the third uh, thought in that scenario was Pastor uh, Clyde is going to be doing a uh, social class on counseling. And uh, certainly, individual counseling is extremely important. But I know our, our brother also is uh, committed to the idea that uh, uh, we counsel from the pulpit, from the uh, Sunday school class, from our uh, gathering together in Bible studies as well, uh, of group counseling and uh I thought that that kind of fits in with this theme as well. As you remember, uh, Job's three friends are described as miserable counselors. Uh, they didn't prove to be very helpful to Job at all. God says that they did not speak the things that were right concerning God. So we want to spend some time in the book of Job. I'm not going to do the whole book. I'm not going to cover 42 chapters verse by verse. But I am going to go through the beginning chapters verse by verse, and then I'm going to pick out some major themes uh, in the dialogues that take place, and we'll look at the final chapter. Uh, but that will take us some time. So we'll do Job at night. We're going to be doing Second Corinthians in the morning, and that will be in the uh, extended short period of time. So tonight, we close in Matthew chapter 5, looking at a lesson on righteousness. Jesus concerning righteousness was quite different from that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had uh, taken great umbrage at Jesus for his teaching. Uh, they didn't appreciate what he had to say. And that is because he contradicted them left and right. The Jewish people looked to the Pharisees as the model of righteousness. These were the poster children for righteousness. If anybody was righteous, in the minds of the Jewish people, it were the Pharisees. And that's how they loved to be viewed. Uh, they enjoyed the reputation of being righteous or holy people. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being unrighteous. 
So Jesus is now going to set the record straight. And I'll look at these verses in just a moment. But key verse is Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, unless you do better than these guys, you're never going to make it to heaven. In one fell swoop, he brings them down. But now it is he bring them off the pedestal, but he actually says, unless you are more righteous than they, you're not going to go to heaven. The implication is, they're not going to heaven. They're not going to make it. They're not going to be there. Obviously, that was offensive to the Pharisees, you can imagine. But beyond that, it was just mind-boggling to the average Jewish person. If they're not going to make it, then who in the world is? If these Pharisees aren't going to be accepted by God, then how am I ever going to be acceptable by God? Is the thought that would have been present in the mind of the Jewish people. So, Jesus is going to set the record straight. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. He's answering the accusations of the Pharisees. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. <coughs> Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, the theme is, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, a person's righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees in both what they taught and how they conducted themselves. In other words, the righteousness of the Pharisees was deficient in two ways. They were not personally righteous in the lives that they led, even though they presented themselves that way. Uh, elsewhere, they're referred to as white wall sepulchers. Look good on the outside, but in the inside, nothing but rot and decay. Uh, and then, secondly, not only personally are they unrighteous, but they're leading you astray. They're teaching falsehood. They're not teaching what is right. So the powers that be are at odds. Jesus saying one thing, the Pharisees saying another. So, Christ's relationship to law is to fulfill the law completely and not make it null or void. They were accusing Jesus of failure to obey the Old Testament law. They were accusing Jesus of running contrary to the commands of Moses. They were saying that Jesus, among other things, was a Sabbath breaker. That was one that they loved to nail at Jesus for the things that he was doing on the Sabbath day, healing, etc., etc. You're breaking God's law, they kept saying. You are going contrary to the teaching of the Scriptures. You are false. So Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So A, Christ did not come to destroy the Old Testament. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Number one, it must be kept in mind that Jesus is referring to not just the law, meaning the Mosaic ceremonial law, but the entire Old Testament. Don't think that I came to abolish the law 
or the prophets. In the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is divided into two categories. There are there there is the law, and then there's the prophets. We divide the Old Testament into law and wisdom literature and uh, historic literature and prophetic literature. They had just two categories: they had law and they had prophets, as they understood it. And so Jesus is saying, "I didn't come to destroy either the law or the prophets." Thus, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to nullify the Scriptures. I didn't come to disobey the truth of God. He said, I came to accomplish it. Christ came to accomplish the Old Testament completely as it is revealed. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The extent of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ came as the, uh, all the prophecies will come to pass, all the covenants will be kept, and all the judgments will be entered into. Everything that the Old Testament says, everything it predicts, is going to come to pass. Two, the manner of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. The Old Testament scriptures are accomplished in or by Christ. So they are accomplished either in what Jesus does or in who he is. So it is through his death and resurrection that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament are going to experience their reality. They are types. We find out in the Old Testament that Moses is given a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And so they build an earthly tabernacle. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. Everything that you're to learn about God and your relationship to Him through the sacrificial system is accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice for sin. So that it is accomplished in, in what He does, and it's accomplished by Him, through Him. He is going to fulfill not just personally, but bring to pass all the prophetic portions of the Word of God. Now, some of that is still yet future to us, but nonetheless, Jesus will accomplish it. He'll fulfill it. He will come back to this earth. He's going to reign over the throne of David. He's going to do all that the Old Testament says is going to be done. None of it is left behind. So, say, Christ then speaks to the certainty of the complete fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ is speaking honestly. I tell you the truth, he says. I don't deceive you. I'm not misleading you. I tell you the truth. Number two, every detail of the Old Testament will come to pass. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says... Not until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everything the law says, I will fulfill, I will obey, I will bring to pass. Number two, 
The teacher's relationship to the Old Testament. The greatness of a teacher is to be seen in the teacher's life and content. So, the teacher of the Old Testament, the teacher of the Law and the Prophets, needs to be a person who personally obeys the Law of God and then accurately teaches the Law of God. And what Jesus is going to assert here is that he personally obeys the Law of God and he accurately teaches the Law of God. And then... He's going to lay it in the Pharisee's lap and say, you don't obey the law of God and you don't teach the law of God. So let's see how that's unpacked. Matthew 5:19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that A, the great teacher of the Old Testament must seek to obey the teaching of the Old Testament. It starts with verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least commandments. And then secondly, and teaches other also. So the first part is personal righteousness or holiness. Before you teach someone else, you are to put into practice that what you are going to preach or teach. You are to live consistently. With that which you proclaim. Ezra was viewed as a great teacher of the Old Testament. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 it says, This Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Which Lord had, God had given to Israel. And the king granted him all his requests because the hand of the Lord his God was Upon him. And then verse 9, I put that in there because again at the end of that it says, because the good hand of his God was upon him. God's blessing was upon Ezra. Ezra proved to be profitable. Ezra proved to be helpful. He was a skilled teacher of the law of God. He was a standout in the Old Testament. And so, he was blessed of God. He was honored by God. The reasons why Ezra was such a great teacher of the Old Testament is given to us in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For, that is why he was an outstanding scribe and why God's hand was upon him. For, three reasons. First, A, Ezra studied the Old Testament. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. He prepared his heart. Meaning that he took the steps necessary. He committed himself, before he did anything else, to seek the law of the Lord. To search it out diligently. Ezra was an incredible student of the Scriptures. He knew that of which he spoke. He dedicated himself to understand what God's Word taught. Secondly, Ezra sought to keep the commandments of the Old Testament. Prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and then to do it. So not only was he diligently searching the Scriptures to understand them, 
But he did so with a heart that wanted to obey the Scriptures, to act and live in accordance with what the Scriptures taught. He wanted a life of consistency. He didn't just want to be good at Bible trivia. He just didn't study the Scriptures in order to prove himself wise or authoritative or hold a position. But the reason he was giving himself to the study of the Scriptures is because he wanted to please God. He wanted to obey God. He wanted to do what the Word of God said. And then thirdly, Ezra sought to teach the Old Testament to the people. For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. He was concerned that the children of Israel would understand the law of God. And so Ezra is a focal point, not only in the book of Ezra, but in the book of Nehemiah as well, where he is a teacher. He is the main teacher of the children of Israel after the exile. They're coming back to Babylon. Excuse me. They're coming back to Jerusalem after having been carried away captive to Babylon. There were a bunch of people that for a long time had not been instructed in the Word of God. Uh, He's got to deal with a bunch of illiterate, unknowledgeable Israelites. He's got to teach them the ABCs. He's got to give them a fast course because... They're going to start rebuilding the temple. They're going to be rebuilding walls. They're going to be doing a whole lot of stuff. Offering sacrifices they never had done before when they were in Babylon. These people don't have a clue. And his job is to take them from ground zero to a place where now they're going to be rebuilding this temple. They're going to be rebuilding the walls. They're going to be offering sacrifices. They're going to be observing the Passover and all this stuff. And so he's going to have to teach them. And he's committed to doing so. But the order is significant. Before he can teach, he has to study. And before he teaches, he has to seek to be obedient. Jesus is going to be this person who he knows the law. He obeys the law, and he's teaching the law. We have a tendency, I think, to minimize Jesus' dedication to understanding the law of God. I think that we tend to think that because he's the Son of God, he knew it all. Well, as the Son of God, he does know it all. But the Word of God tells us that as a human being, he grew in wisdom and knowledge. The glimpse that we have of Jesus is as a 12-year-old in the temple asking questions of the rabbi. We know the story because he says to his, his mother, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? What was he doing? He was asking questions of the rabbi. And they were marveling at what this 12-year-old boy knew. What was Jesus doing the first 30 years of his life? Those are silent years. We know that he was working as a carpenter. Other than that, we don't know anything. What was he doing? 
He was learning the law of God. He was learning the Scriptures. Jesus, time and time again, is quoting the Old Testament, the, the Word of God. He demonstrates a knowledge of the Word of God that confounds the religious teachers of His day. As a human being, that was a result of a tremendous amount of commitment on his part to the Word of God. And then secondly, of course, he sought to obey it, to live it out, to do it. And then lastly, and also chronologically lastly, he taught the Word of God. And again, one of those mind-boggling things that Jesus' public ministry is only for three and a half years. Out of the 33 years that he lived on this earth, he only spent three and a half of those years teaching the Word of God. That's how important it was that he knew the Word of God. Uh, so many times people want to rush into ministry without taking the time, the diligence, to really spend the necessary, required amount of time to know the Scriptures. And <laughs> obviously we can't know them. <coughs> Exhaust. <coughs> Excuse me. Exhaustively. But I'm just saying, here is Jesus, looking at these Pharisees, and he is an example of a righteous and holy teacher because he had given himself to these things. Number uh, Letter B on bottom page 3. The great teacher of the Old Testament must teach others to obey the commands of God. Anyone who breaks one of these least commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were not faithful in the Old Testament in their teaching. They were finding fault with Christ's teaching. So, in Matthew chapter 15, we have an extended illustration of how the Pharisees failed to teach the Old Testament as they should. A. Uh, excuse me, Matthew 15.1. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the, trans the tradition of the elders they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So they find fault with Jesus. Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And here, it's not just a concern about germs. They didn't even understand germs. It was a ceremonial cleansing. Why don't they do that? Why, why don't they follow the teaching of the elders? The, the, the rabbinic teaching that's been handed down through the centuries. A. They taught people to sin in relationship to the Old Testament. And he answered and said to them, And why do yourselves transgress the commandment of God? Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? 
They're finding fault with Jesus' disciples. Jesus ones up them, if you will, and doesn't follow, doesn't, doesn't uh, find fault with the disciples of the Pharisees. He finds fault with the Pharisees themselves. He says, and why do you transgress the commandment of God? You're going to be on me about my disciples transgressing the tra- tradition. It's much more important that you are transgressing God's commands, not just human traditions. They, they taught people to sin because they taught people to obey the tradition rather than follow God's command. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They, in essence, valued their tradition higher than they valued the Word of God. And there are many religious institutions that do the very same thing today. That they value their tradition more than they value the Word of God. We could use a lot of examples. We could look at the Seventh-day Adventists and see that, that the teachings of the Adventists are much more important than the Scriptures. That it is reading through the eye of the Adventists rather than reading through the eyes of Scriptures. We think of Mormons. Mormons say that they venerate the Scriptures. The Mormons say that the Book of Mormon and the Scriptures are of equal value. They are equally important. That's a problem, of course. But at least they say they're of equal value. That is their stated position. But their practice is that the Book of Mormon is far more important than the Scriptures. I remember I was working with uh, two young Mormons, spending a lot of time with them. And at the end, I just challenged them with this. And we got to know each other pretty well, and, and uh, we were pretty open with each other. And I said to them, I said to them, guys, uh, have you ever read the Book of Mormon through? And they said, oh, sure, sure. And repeatedly, I said to them, have you ever read your Bible through? And they said, no, we haven't. And I said, well, according to your own teaching, you ought to not pick up the Book of Mormon again until you've caught up in reading the Bible. Because you say they're equal. I challenge you, don't read the Book of Mormon. Read the Bible as many times as you read the Book of Mormon. Then pick up the Book of Mormon. Well, the Pharisees are giving lip service to their adherence to the Old Testament, but in reality, they were putting more stress on what the rabbis taught than they were the Old Testament. They were taking the teaching of the rabbis and their interpretation as being more reliable than their own personal study of the Scriptures. See, Jesus provided the Pharisees with an example of how they broke the Old Testament through following their tradition. Matthew 15, 4, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let them be put to death. But you said, okay, here's what God said, but here's what you said. 
It's not the same thing. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped has been given to God. The result of the tradition is that the father and mother are not honored. He is not to honor his father or mother, and thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. The Pharisees were just great about finding ways around God's law. The reason that they could stand up there and say they fulfilled it was because they twisted it all the time. And making it say something it did not. Finding loopholes. And so here's one example. A father or mother comes to their child and says they are in need of something. Well, they should honor their father and mother and give their father and mother what they need. But if they say, oh, we'd love to, but we dedicated this to the Lord. This has been set apart for the Lord's service. We can't help you because we got to give this to God. We already committed this to God. And yet God says, help them. And so if you committed this to God, do what God says. Help your father and your mother, Jesus is saying. They, uh, e, thus their tradition results in people breaking the law of God. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Therefore the Pharisees are hypocrites. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. And here's the real key. They were being hypocritical. They weren't being honest. They weren't being sincere. They weren't being candid. They knew very well what motivated them. And that was their greed and ambition. The reason they didn't want to help father and mother with their resources is because they'd have to give it up. And this way they can be selfish and keep it for their own purposes by saying that it's been dedicated to God. Gee, they speak of of an allegiance to the Old Testament that is not genuine. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They say the right stuff, but inwardly they are as far away as can be. H, they replace the teaching of the Old Testament with a teaching of their own. But in vain... They do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They don't teach the Word of God. They teach what men say about the Word of God. They don't teach the Scripture. They teach what people say about the Scripture. That is still a huge problem in Christendom today. And that is that we allow human beings to be the authoritative interpretation of Scripture. There's a whole lot of people that just follow what certain people say. They become their disciples. And whatever they say becomes gospel truth. We need to follow the Scriptures. We can learn from people. I hope you learn from me. But the authority is always the Word of God. We're looking at the Bible tonight. We're looking at verses. And if this isn't what it says, don't do what I say. We are seeking to follow 
the Scriptures. So, Jesus contrasts his teaching with that of the Old Testament. Jesus should have been viewed as a great teacher. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was living righteously. It should be acknowledged as such. The righteousness that Jesus taught and modeled exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees. For I say unto you, Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus provides examples of how his teaching on righteousness exceeds the Pharisees' understanding of righteousness. So this is a large part of Matthew chapter 5. He's going to contrast and demonstrate how the righteousness that he practices and the righteousness that he teaches is far superior than the righteousness that the Pharisees practice and the righteousness the Pharisees teach. And he does so by examining the Old Testament law and what it says. Matthew 5.21. First example about murder. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, so he's going to contrast that which the ancients have said and that which Jesus says. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the courts, and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whatever you, that, whenever you shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In other words, anger and bitterness are as bad as murder itself. The motivation out of which the murder originates. The desire, that hatred, that willingness, that wanting to kill someone. And of course, Jesus is looking at a bunch of people who desperately want to kill him. They hate him. And eventually, he's going to hang on the cross. Because they hire false witnesses against them. They're going to do all kinds of evil things out of a hatred for Jesus. And before he ever hangs on the cross, he exposes the sin of this hatred. And says, that's enough to condemn you right there. Next, adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for, his, for her has committed adultery with already in his heart. You're just worried about outward actions. But, if you lust in your heart, you've already broken the commandment of God. Again, you've heard the ancients were told you should not make a false vow, but you'll fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say unto you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool or a feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything else beyond this is evil. The uh, Pharisees, when they looked at the Old Testament, where it says, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord, they provided themselves with this out. They read it, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. If you vow a vow to the Lord, then you're accountable. 
But if you don't avow the Lord, make a vow to the Lord, wink, wink, then you're not accountable. And so the rabbis taught, you can swear by your hair on your head, or you can swear by all this other stuff, and it's okay. Because what you can't do is break your vow to the Lord. But it's not about making false vows. It's about making false vows to the Lord. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, guys. It's about making false vows. And you can't make false vows. Matthew 5.38 You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you in the right cheek, turn him the other cheek. Matthew 5, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's interesting that they took, notice, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Uh, this particular version of the NAS that I use on Wednesday nights, uh, excuse me, on, on my handouts on Sunday nights. If you notice, the, all, the all capitals, that means that that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. I find that to be helpful. I, I like that. And if you notice in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and the next statement and hate your enemy. That's not in the Old Testament. That's not in that verse. That's what the Pharisees did to the verse. They took, you shall love your neighbor, and then added, and you should hate your enemy. And that's why they come to Jesus and say to Jesus, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because they're looking for a way out. They so define their neighbor that they can end up hating everybody. Jesus in just a few brief moments, points out time and time again how they have corrupted their understanding of the law of God. And they have taken God's holy and righteous standard and just knocked the feet out from under it and turned it on its head. They gave them license to break the law of God. Three, Jesus should have been viewed as a great teacher. Conclusion. A, the righteousness that God requires exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall no case enter the kingdom of heaven. As long as you didn't pull the trigger, you don't have to worry about murder. As long as you love your enemy, uh, excuse me, as long as you love your neighbor, it's okay to hate your enemy. And who knows who your neighbor is. So, it's okay. Adultery, as long as you don't get caught in the very act, it's okay. Don't have to worry about your personal life. Don't have to worry about your thought life. Don't have to worry about your heart. Don't have to worry about any of those stuff. It's all external. Nothing internal. Psalm 51, David realized that God requires truth in the inward parts. David realized in Psalm 51 that what God desires is a broken and contrite spirit. David realized in Psalm 51 that he needed a new heart. The Pharisees didn't get it. 
Pharisees weren't at all concerned about the inner person. They're just concerned about externals. And so Jesus says, boy, you've got to be more righteous than that. B, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Our righteousness must be internal, not just external. We need to be worried about thought and motive, not just action. Number two, our righteousness must meet the demands of God, not just the demands of men. I'm always amazed by those groups of people that teach sinless perfection. How in this world can you ever, ever achieve sinless perfection? Answer, by making new rules. By putting up a different standard of righteousness. By replacing God's law with man's law. By worrying about externals, not internals. So it becomes about how long you wear your hair. Whether you wear long sleeves or short sleeves. White shirts or blue shirts. Ties or no ties. What color the car is you drive. Whether you drive a car or not. Whether you drive a horse and buggy. All of these things. If you're going to follow man's standard, you can be righteous. But if you're going to follow God's standard, we're all going to come up short. And that's what Jesus seeks to drive home. The Pharisees come up short. But not just them. Everybody else. Everybody else. So three, our righteousness must be the righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness must be the righteousness, first of all, that he practiced. Was tempted on points like as we are, yet without sin. The righteousness that he taught. The truth of God's word. And then thirdly, the righteousness that he provides. We need an imputed righteousness. We need His righteousness imputed to us. And that's what the Pharisees hated. And that's what they weren't willing to submit to. They weren't willing to gulp and say, we are not righteous enough to merit eternal life. And instead, they just bombasted Jesus because He violated their teaching. He didn't violate the Old Testament. He violated the teaching of the rabbis, the teaching of the Pharisees, the teaching of the ancients, the teaching that they had established. And he loved flying in the face of their tradition. He loved breaking their tradition. He went out of his way to publicly go against the teaching of of the Pharisees. Why? To illustrate time and time again that that isn't the standard. The Scriptures are the standard. Jesus came not to abolish them. He came to fulfill them. The Pharisees give lip service to following the Scriptures. He says, you're the guys that are abolishing it. You're the guys that are removing it. You're the guys that are changing and exchanging the Scriptures for the tradition." Amen. May God preserve us and keep us from the temptation to replace God's law with man's law. God's standards with human standards. God's declaration of right and wrong with our own perception 
of right and wrong. May we humbly acknowledge that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And without Him, we can't measure up. Let's pray. Our Father, bless us, we pray. Help us to be a follower of Your Word. We recognize it's not as easy as that sounds. Because we are constantly in situations in which we are taught to replace the teaching of Scripture with the teaching of men. And it leads many, many people astray. And we certainly have witnessed in recent times how people have been duped about the Lord's return because they followed the teaching of the man rather than the teaching of Scripture. So, Lord, help us not to just give lip service to following you, not just drawing near with our lips, but, Lord, help us to draw near with our hearts that we would be good adherents of the Word of God. That, first of all, we'd seek to know what it says. And then secondly, that we'd teach to do it. And then lastly, and yet importantly, that we're then ready to teach others what your Word says. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.